The New York Times makes most of its money off of subscriptions. Facebook makes its money off of native advertising. Hacker News is funded by Y Combinator. Each of these business models creates biases in the information that gets promoted on the respective platforms. This is why I like to know the origin story and the business models behind the publications that I read. Published content is shaped by the profit motive of the publication. And yet, last month I repeatedly found myself reading high-quality content on a medium publication that I did not know the origin of. It was called Hacker Noon. Hacker Noon is a popular medium publication that syndicates curated content written about software. Let me explain syndication. Imagine that I just spent three days on a medium post about functional programming, and I have zero followers on social media. How can I get people to read my awesome post? The answer is syndication. I can submit my medium post to be syndicated on Hacker Noon, and then it will get exposed to their audience, and this gives me free distribution, and it gives Hacker Noon free content. So this is a win-win relationship. But why is it worth it for Hacker Noon to spend time curating content? That syndication process takes a lot of time, and you have to read through all these submissions, and sometimes you have to send it back to the author to have it edited, and all of this is to build a following on Medium. I have not heard of Medium being a profitable platform to build a business. It's worth pointing out here the difference between Medium and WordPress. On WordPress, this model of curated syndication has worked to massive success. For example, the Huffington Post and TechCrunch. These businesses make millions of dollars from advertising networks because they are built on WordPress, and WordPress is an open model. A publisher on WordPress can install plugins that serve ads from third-party providers like Outbrain and Taboola. If you've ever been on a WordPress news or information site, you have probably seen these Outbrain or Taboola ads. A WordPress site can also install any kind of data collection scripts to gather data on users and sell it to the highest bidder. The lack of third-party plugins is the blessing and the curse of Medium. Because there is no third-party ecosystem, reading content on Medium is a beautiful experience. The page loads quickly and predictably. There are no random scripts that are blocking the page as they hog your browser's resources. And when you go to close the page, there is never a pop-up that asks you to subscribe to somebody's newsletter. When I read content on Medium, I am not getting slapped across the face with ads for reverse mortgages and acai berries. I'm not being tagged for retargeting. It is a beautiful experience. But Medium seems like an ecosystem that would not allow for the content syndication business like Hacker Noon. I wanted to know who was running Hacker Noon, how the business works, and what it says about Medium as a publishing platform. Hacker Noon turns out to be part of a network of medium publications called AMI. AMI's network includes sites like Art Plus Marketing, Future Travel, and Fit Yourself Club, all of which are distinct syndication platforms with thousands of followers. David Smook is the CEO of AMI, and he joins this episode to explain how his business works and how he has scaled the content syndication business, as well as why he is betting on Medium. 
It was a detailed look into the state of online publishing and where it might be headed. If you don't read Hacker Noon already, one article to start with that shows off the quality of content that is being syndicated is Learn Blockchains by Building One. I interviewed the author of that article, Daniel Van Flyman, and it has been one of the most popular episodes of Software Engineering Daily. With that, let's get on with this episode. David Smook is the CEO of AMI, a blog network that includes Hacker Noon, which is a very popular medium publication for developers. David, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hello. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, it's great to have you. And I am interested in talking about online publishing content for engineers and just a variety of things that you are something of an expert on. But I want to talk more broadly first about online publishing. I'd like to know from your point of view, how has online publishing changed in the last five years? I think a lot of it has moved from the brand to the individual. So I focus on professional publishing for the most part. And a lot of it is, it's as much about who's writing it as where it's published. So I think there's a lot more outlets for, you know, top engineers and, you know, basically professionals in anything to reach, you know, more niche audiences. So as opposed to, you know, posts being authored by the brand or going through the PR team, I think a lot more of the professional content that's going out there and specifically with blogs and writing is coming directly from the horse's mouth and the person that's actually the expert in it. Mm. And like the rise of, you know, LinkedIn publisher, the rise of Medium, how easy it is to build your own blog, and then how many people are also using, you know, Facebook as a long-form blogging. And so there's just more, I mean, even five years ago, you know, a lot has happened and just in terms of how easy it is to publish in many places and how many more companies and sites like me are emerging where they're really focused on a large network of experts as opposed to we're going to have 10 staff writers and they're going to cover when this company gets funding, which I think is not the direction that digital publishing is headed. I always find it you know, much more interesting to read it from the person that's actually building it as opposed to the person who's watching the person building it. So that's a lot more how I've seen it emerge. And that's, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a lot of uh, what I've based my business on. Hmm. What do you think of the contrast between that blogosphere, that single person who is writing an article about their own subjective experience doing something or having observed something, and the more traditional model of the fact-checked New York Times, Washington Post, hallowed institution. What's the place for each of those respective media styles? Yeah, and there's, there's always going to be a ton of value in fact-checking. Uh, I mean, my, my second job in college, I was fact-checking for a teacher's book, and it was you know, a great lesson in detail and how, how much really goes into good fact-checking. To me, the bigger question is first starting with you know, what is publishable and what is not, you know, just this weekend, the New York Times, I mean, it's a well-written piece, I guess, but, you know, they're choosing to publish the story about this Nazi sympathizer. And it's like, you're the New York Times and you're well fact-checked, but you're still choosing, you know, some questionable topics to publish. So I think 
the first thing in terms of a, a publication or a news outlet starts with there of defining, you know, what is publishable and what is not. And, you know, what do you, what stories, what types of stories do you want to push forward and create readership for? But, you know, because there's more sources than ever and more people can become news outlets, there is a lot more fake news and there is a lot more questionable news. And then there's a lot more stories that, while at the core of them are very true, they can have things in there that are not true. And those specific things can be, you know, that can be spun out of control. So it's definitely a massive challenge. And I mean, it's a lot of it also remains on the reader to be smarter about how they get to this site and understanding how they got to this site. I think Facebook is doing solid pushback with their ads in terms of letting less, but more reducing the number of misleading sites that are able to get traffic from them. You know, like all the I don't know if you've ever seen like the weight supplement stuff where they'll make it look like ESPN.com, but at the end of it, it's an ad for a weight supplement and they'll put ESPN in the subdomain to make it look like it's the main domain. So, you know, the reader does have to be careful about where they are and understanding where they are and what that means for regards to the, the story that they're reading. Mm. You alluded to some of the newer ways of advertising online these days particularly the model of misleading the reader, there are many other creative avenues for making a business online. There's the model of sponsored content. I have some sponsored content on my show, some shows that I accept money from a large tech company in exchange for doing a show about some of their technology. And it feels like a copacetic relationship but I have to admit, the incentives are become aligned for me to be more friendly towards that company. So perhaps it, it creates a potentially disingenuous relationship or at least pre- prevents me from being a journalist to, to the extent that I would be reporting critically on those specific companies or at least it leans the incentives in that particular direction. I think that's the risk mm-hmm. that people always are talking about when it comes to sponsored content. But on the other hand, the money that you can make from a sponsored content business uh, tends to be more lucrative than the money that you're going to make from just running ads that are just sitting next to the content itself. What do you think about that blurring of the lines between sponsored content and advertising? Yeah, it's a very uh, complicated time right now. The more I've been thinking about the subject matter the more I've been digging into advertising versus accreditation. So for example, if a brand writes a post and it's a very good post and they're the author of the post, is that an advertisement? And is that enough of an advertisement to be sponsored content? Or the fact that they put 40 man hours into this post, is that enough that it's not an advertisement and I am accrediting them as the author? There's a lot of different directions there that are are very complicated. I mean, if anyone's contributing to your site or podcast, there's some incentive, unless you are a, you know, a podcast or a site that's trying to make people look bad, there is incentive that you're working together, whether it's a sponsored post or not. And you want this post to be as good as it can be so that it can get as many readers as it can get. And the same with the podcast. I mean, it may limit you know, some subject matter that's not talked about in terms of how you work with brands and how you work with an individual. 
I mean, but backing up, you know, with my business model, we've had uh, weekly sponsors on Hacker Noon where they're in the top navigation of every page, a co-branding. They have a link on every page and then they republish three posts and they have one original interview with me. And the idea is to put a face to the weekly sponsorship campaign and kind of play into this blur between public relations and advertising where it is news that you are advertising here. And then back to my other readers, you know, as we're publishing 150 plus posts a week on Hacker Noon, these four posts that are sponsored keep my ratio very low. And I would, they're all marked as sponsored posts, but I want them all to be of the quality of the site if they were sponsored posts or not. And I don't want anything on my site that I wouldn't publish as part of the editorial line. So whenever I go into those type of arrangements, I try to make it clear that, you know, you're subject to the editorial line like everyone else. You just get more hands-on and more attention and more getting your story up to snuff. I'd like to ease into a discussion of your business, this company AMI Publications, because you're not an engineer. You didn't start Hacker Noon as like an engineer who was just starting a cool magazine about engineering and hacking, which is what I assumed Hacker Noon was when I first stumbled upon it. I was like, oh, this is probably something that was started by an engineer, but it was not. It was started as part of a network of your publishing sites, your AMI publications. And this network of publishing sites actually grew out of a company that you had started before that, which was a content creation company called ArtMap. So you originally started this company to help companies define their voice, basically this type of sponsored content creation slash public relations. You had a company that helped companies do that. And then over time, you decide, well, let's make a network of publishing sites that will help with distribution of that type of content. Would you give a quick overview of how your company evolved to where it is today? Sure. Yeah, we did start as ArtMap Inc. And a lot of it was defining who these early stage startups were. And taking even a step further back, I was with a startup called Smart Recruiters that went from about seven people and the seed funding through Series A, Series B, and well over 100 people. So I kind of saw that stage of how a company gets their story out there. So that put me as an individual in demand with, you know, a number of early stage startups that wanted that same phase of like, you know, because we grew a lot by opening up the blog opposed to saying this blog is about smart recruiters. And that's a very big fundamental shift about how most people do not operate with their startup marketing. So I tried to apply that to a bunch of different startups uh, basically, we would take on six-month contracts uh, split between three-fourths cash and one-fourth equity. So we would align incentives that you know I wanted to grow my network of my basically my first portfolio, and I didn't have very much money. And essentially, the whole structure was shortening the relationship between startup employer and startup employee. Instead of four years full-time salary you know, to get whatever equity, you know, shorten four years to six months and put a team behind it instead of an individual. So I, I really, really like that model. I still think some pretty large companies can be grown with that because 
it really fits in terms of like content is a longer term game. So, you know, if you want to align incentives, it's not the same as aligning with the salesperson. You know, if you align with the salesperson, making equity on a shorter term contract can make less sense. Um, I think with content, it can make more sense in terms of getting residual sales. But, you know, there was a major pivot when Medium came out and they opened up their publication feature to the public. And that allowed, that's where we moved our corporate blog. And the very first blog we built was called Art Plus Marketing. And I really wanted to get at the intersection of how stories are made and then how they're distributed. So a lot like what I was doing with my business, but be much broader in terms of stories because that's, I was interested in much more, much broader topics. And as that, and that broader meant I could open myself up to more contributors. And as we started to develop systems for how writers can contribute to us, we actually got a contribution from Craig from Craigslist. And it was 20 years of Craigslist, the reflection by an old school nerd. And when I got this submission, I was really like, it was a, a big deal because, you know, maybe the business isn't in the marketing and maybe the business is in the stories themselves, which really is a bit of a light bulb in my head because, you know, just being able to read the best stories every day and be a part of like kind of a bigger destination for storytelling. In my mind, it was a pivot worth making. Medium is a platform that I think few people understand whether it's valuable or not. Well, I think everybody knows that it's valuable, but it's I guess it's unintuitive how valuable it is because I go to Medium all the time, but you know, I'm not sure would I invest in it. I don't really know. It's one of these like second generation social network slash publishing tool tools that I I always bucket it with Quora and think of it as as a competitor to Quora. What do you think of Medium as a platform? What makes it an appealing platform to you? You know, there's been a lot of competition in the space. With Medium from the beginning, you know, just cutting out a lot of the waste of reading on the internet was the primary appeal to me. You know, no like sidebars, I think I'm done with them. I don't like them. I think like the you look at the purpose of most sidebars on the internet and it's to take you away from the story mm. and try and sell this attention, whether you're selling that attention to an ad or whether you're selling that attention to your product or whether you're selling that attention to let me get your email information now mid story. There's always like rarely in the reading experience is a sidebar valuable. You know, it's very hard to make something on the side of the story relevant to that specific story. So that was definitely appealing right away. And I mean, as it grew, you know, they understood like if you have a good reading experience on an individual post and you put a network behind it and you help people get readers, you already have such a valuable thing. It's because um, this internet, it can feel very siloed. There's always these trade-offs happening, whether you, you know, you give up your design to get in the newsfeed more or you keep your design and it's on your site. But when it goes in Facebook's newsfeed, you know, it, it doesn't display properly and it's not a very clickable thing. And every time you post links on Facebook, they get less engagement than if you write or put an original image on Facebook. There's a lot of, you know, back and forth between sites that are hosting blog posts versus sites that are distributing blog posts. And I mean, Medium themselves, they've, you know, they've gone through a number of pivots, but they've kept, from what I can see, they've kept to the core 
of you know helping the contributing writer and helping the writer get relevant readership and starting to get you know more money for their for their writing how are the returns and building a business on medium i'm still getting there uh, i mean this business is growing and we have a lot of traffic and we're up to 160,000 daily readers but we're not making the most as we could off that number and that's okay you know because i want to look at more longer term ways for contributing writers to have revenue share with me and overall you know a lot of businesses have also left medium as medium is figuring out you know what's allowed and what's not allowed i would say uh not over the top in how the returns are going so far obviously as a as a reader of medium i love the experience of not being distracted by sidebars and the ads are very non-intrusive, but it does make me think, how on earth could you build an advertising-based business on Medium unless you did the sponsored content model, which actually I think is would be a great model because companies need to tell their story, or you could do the subscription model. Mm-hmm. How viable are those two revenue streams? Do you think there are things that are going to grow in the near future? Well, I'd start with they're all viable. And if, if you look at uh, as a media, media companies get bigger than mine, it's, it's generally from multiple sources, you know, and we haven't even mentioned events. You know, a lot of times with these companies, you know, events become a primary uh, revenue stream. And then with ads, you know, consistent non-intrusive ads can be, that can be like keeping the lights on. As you get the ads down to a simple way where like, you know, the ads are part of the space that I'm already using and I'm not creating new spaces before and after stories to make ads. I'm putting, you know, ads in the top navigation where, you know, you've already, with no ads, the reader doesn't lose any more space. So thinking about the page of like how much total space there is can be helpful when you think about how to make your advertisements less intrusive. And I do think, you know, more gated content and more premium tutorials, you know, because there's a lot of like, you're learning a very specialized skill on Hacker Noon, you know, depending on what you're reading, you can get deep into how to build stuff, where the next step is, you may want to connect with someone who knows more about this, and you can actually buy some of their time, or you can buy their tutorial, or you can buy their premium content. So I do think that area is growing a lot because, you know, as media gets more niche, you know, it's hard to even get to the next, you have to, to get to the right story. Sometimes you have to read the right story before it. You know, it's, sometimes it can be hard to move from Google to the specific engineering expertise that you need next. So it'll sometimes there'll be multiple stories in the middle of that life cycle of, you know, willing to pay for the premium content. So I, I do think that'll grow and it's an area we could go more into. But I don't, no one really knows for certain. Is, is the, there is a little bit of a uh, grand experiment going on right now in digital publishing that is honestly pretty fun to be a part of. So do you think people are going to be more willing to pay for subscriptions? Absolutely. I mean, you're seeing it across, open up your monthly bank account. You know, how many subscriptions are you paying for and how many were you paying for yeah. five years ago? It's like True. night and day. And I mean, there's services that are emerging just to help you manage all of your subscriptions. You know, I've been targeted with all these ads of like, hey, you know, like you don't even know what you're paying for this month. And you start to dig into (laughs) it and you go into your personal and your business accounts. And it's like, it's really, it becomes pretty true. There's things you subscribe to that you didn't even realize, you know, or you realized and you didn't use and you forgot about. So 
in, in that way, you know, a hundred percent, like as just a, a behavior, you know, I'm, I'm much more in the phone, the phone made it a lot simpler of just like, we're going to so many things. We're just going to bill you for every month. And it always, you know, make people do one extra math problem. And like you gain a lot as a business. It's like, Oh, it's $2 a month. It's like, they don't even think how many months they're going to use it for. And what $2 a month means as regards to like, so many people would be completely unwilling to pay $20 today, but they're so willing to pay $2 a month. Yeah. Agreed. It's like, wait a minute, that, that's more money, probably, you know, if you're, if you're going to have it for a year. So it's, yeah, I, I, I mean, subscriptions in millennial generation and also just everyone using a smartphone, it's, it's a massive, massive rise. And yeah, I would like to read, read and publish more about it, to be honest. I think China is a, if you view China as a leading indicator of technology, I'm pretty sure China, Chinese consumers more aggressively purchase subscriptions to media outlets. So that could be a bright future for publication. So you've got these 17 publications across Medium. You've got Hacker Noon, which I think is the biggest of your publications. And you've got a a whole bunch of other ones. You've got some about, I think, fitness and travel and just these other topics all across Medium. How have you scaled that horizontal expansion as you've built up all of these different publications you know each one has thousands of subscribers you publish lots of articles on them uh are you just reading all the content yourself i'm reading a lot but no i'm not not reading it all myself definitely i want to scale up a large network of part-time editors that are experts in the field that is or the vertical that's relevant to the publications that's kind of the approach and also taking a step back with the publications, you know, we did start 16. Hacker Noon is the largest. And then we have another group of five that are all very strong. And then it, it kind of drops off as the next 10 are very niche. So that's kind of the the structure in terms of the rough traffic splitting. And the next ones in line, Extra News Feed is our second most popular. And that's the same political rants you see on Facebook, but they're well written. And We've had, you know, a number of viral stories where we've gone either deep into political satire, which I find very funny. And it's a very nice part of my day that, you know, (laughs) every morning there's a new submission coming in about sometimes I feel like the politics that are going on are like a very like dystopian future. And reading the satire can sometimes help me make make myself sane. So, you know, a lot of this of like driving stories, a lot of it does you know, self-centeredly come back to me and what I'm interested in. Because when you publish something that's good uh, in this category, it attracts more stories in this category. And that's kind of how, you know, interest and followings grow where, you know, whenever we publish what it's like to learn JavaScript in 2016, and it's very funny, it's long, it's viral, you know, the next two months, all these other people want to publish their JavaScript how-tos and their JavaScript gripes. So a lot of growth does happen in terms of like follow the leader. And I think this is a good thing because it's also a lot of how search engines judge sites as they say, you know, are you an expert on JavaScript? Let's look at your best stories. Let's look at the surrounding stories. Let's link at what stories link to this story. So there is a pureness to it in terms of authority on subject matter and how that works that it's something where like you can drive it in a direction, but there's also a really large organic component and community component to it that like 
the community will help determine the editorial line, which I think is great. Some people are very scared of. That's driven a lot of a lot of the growth. Also taking a step back of like one thing versus 17 things. I like to think of like if the New York Times tried to move their whole site to medium publications, they wouldn't start one publication because while you know, WordPress, you can do everything on. Medium is a newer platform with a limited feature set. So it makes a lot more sense, you know, if you're outlining a newspaper that A block, B block, C block, or A section, B section, C section, you know, A section, Hacker Noon, B section, Extra News Feed, C section, Art Plus Marketing, you know, tech, politics, marketing, or however you want to divide it, it, just with how the actual functions of the site worked. If you wanted to build one large site, you wouldn't do it by building one large publication. Hmm. Yeah. And more generally, you are building your business within the constraints of Medium, which gives you something of a defensible competitive advantage against companies that might want to migrate to Medium in the future. If Medium becomes a dominant force, if it becomes something like Twitter, you look at Twitter... Twitter took a really long time to get as good as it is today. You know, it, it, it was not, I mean, it took off immediately, obviously, but Twitter today is so much better than it was five or 10 years ago. You know, you look five or 10 years ago, maybe Twitter then looks something like Medium today. Yeah. You know, they have the Ev Williams connection and it is funny to see how people like Twitter moving 140 to 280. It's like Twitter, our strength is brevity. Oh, Maybe it's like brevity, but a little more. And it's like, then you look at Medium emerging as like, oh, we're like Twitter, but without the character limit. There's like, a, so there is, um, you know, the deeper you get into that, there is, and the more blurring there is there, I think the better it is for the smaller company. The more the bigger company is admitting the smaller company is right, is can be good for the smaller company. And I mean, in terms of other companies, you know, building on Medium too, I think that's great, you know. I think it's great that the New York Times publishes behind their paywall. You know, I like publishing on the same platform as, you know, Melinda Gates and Barack Obama. Like there's the more the merrier in a lot of ways. But yeah, I have been here longer and I've built larger audiences. So if, you know, more people want to build here, they have to understand the amount of labor that goes into doing that. And the amount of labor I've already done is, you know, somewhat of a competitive advantage. But it's not just medium and we're looking at like, you know, how many people are assessed subscribers across different channels and how we look at getting people to the next article is not something, it's something that I rely on medium for, but it's not something I solely rely on medium for. And it's something that I know for everything I want to do to be successful, I have to keep innovating in terms of how people can get more readers and more relevant readers. So they're a great platform to work with, but like, you know, just like any other platform, it's going to be what you put into it and you're going to determine it and not the platform. You're not an engineer. And I find it interesting that you take pleasure in reading and editing articles about, for example, JavaScript. I think you just mentioned like an article about JavaScript in 2016 or something like that. Do you think that this is an area where you know, non-experts are going to move into. So like you look at, you know, biology, people have been reading pop biology 
material for years. You know, people who are amateur experts in CRISPR or genomics who just have become amateur experts by reading lots of uh, content. Do, do you feel like you're becoming an, like an amateur or do you feel like the population of people who are interested in sort of amateurish software engineering, computer science stuff, just because it, you know, maybe it affects their day-to-day life. Is there enough of a growing interest in software engineering and computer science that these topics are becoming desirable and accessible to people who are outside of the tech industry? Yes, definitely heading that direction and backing up, you know, as a topic gets more in the weeds of the engineering how-to, you know, we do have part-time editors on Hacker Noon, like Jay Zalowitz, who's an engineer and is able to, you know, understand the deeper technical aspects than I am. But, you know, I'm worked in tech now for seven, eight years. You know, I've been deep into this in terms of the applications of the technology. And like you look at the top of the site today, you know, the top two stories are more than a million pro repeal net neutrality comments were likely faked. A great use of machine learning and data science to figure out, you know, how bots are moving, what comments are made by bots, and then what out of the comments not made by bots, what percentage are pro or against net neutrality. And it found that 99% of the comments by real humans want net neutrality. But if you just look at the total comments, you know, you're going to get close to 50-50 because the level at which people against net neutrality are using bots to make comments on the internet. So I find that as a great, like, intersection of this Jeff, the writer, went very, very deep, you know, in terms of using his skills to apply to a real world issue and how it affects many people. And, you know, the next story, the coming age of killer machines, you know, super interesting, a little bit of a sci-fi type of feel to uh, his writing. And so there, there is a lot of like technology is impacting our lives more than ever. I'd rather hear from the makers about what that means than the, you know, the, the consumers. And so I think that's a more valuable perspective for many people. And then you can go further down the maker's route of Hacker Noon of how to build this, you know, how to do your Raspberry Pi mirror in the morning. But there's also, you know, when I look at tech, you can, there's so much tech reading that is happening that's not about how it's built. You know, you look at team building, there's a lot of company culture dynamics. And then there's a lot of, you know, scandal that I I don't go too deep on the scandal. And, you know, I also just get very fascinated by new products and, you know, new applications of existing technology is very exciting to me. It's getting closer to like, I want to read my morning submissions every day. And I want it to be of the quality that like, I would just read if I was just reading the internet. So it's like this balance of like, trying to get the submissions and the the quality up to like how I just want to read. And so there's a, like a, a battle there between like taste and what's actually published and trying to like move it in the same direction all the time and, you know, help these contributors like reframe their story, reframe their headline, kind of look at like what's valuable about their perspective that like, Sometimes, you know, just one or two changes can make a really big difference. How discerning are you with the people who submit content? What is your strategy as an editor to improve 
the writers who are making submissions because so as i understand this is basically an open submission platform and when people are submitting articles to hacker noon the situation is basically they are giving you free content which you can hopefully monetize at some point but in return you are giving them distribution which is not an easy thing to find on the internet yep yep that's the core of the trade-off we have we have the story on our site um they have distribution and then for stories that are unpaid all contributors can make whatever call to action they want at the end of articles so this is also a pretty big differentiating thing of a lot more sites are more strict on the call to action and they want the call to action to be owned by the publication so in my mind if you're contributing to my site but I'm not paying you and we don't have a revenue share agreement in place for some type of other business. This space has been earned by you. And I think that aligns incentives very in a very good way. I think it's a simple reward of like, whether you want the call to action or whether you want, you know, revenue behind a paywall, it's, it depends on the state of your business in terms of keeping the quality high. One of the better things we did is, you know, we've had 17,000 contributing writers and over a, a thousand of them are essentially whitelist. So that means that in they can publish almost whatever they want. So I'm the top writers basically by building trust and helping us grow the audience. It's to the level where like, I trust you, you can publish. And then, you know, looking at kind of the middle group of submissions, you know, we're looking, it's essentially, you know, a read through, a review of the headline, some formatting, some tagging. If it's a simple story, if we think we can make it a much bigger story, then it's looking at, okay, how do we allocate what editing time we have and what stories are good candidates for those? And then based on that, you know, have some stories that we're interested in really, you know, making as great as they can be. And that that's kind of the, the process. It's something where I want to get deeper into contributor preferences and how contributing writers want to get the most that they can on the internet or out of the internet. It's pretty cool. It is fun to like, you know, I'll publish someone three or four times and I've just read their stuff. And then to finally like, then I'll finally talk to them on the phone. You know, there's just like thousands of people that, you know, I, I just know by reading, which is like really cool in the, in the sense of like when I was little, you know, all these people were so distant, <laughs> you know, anything you're reading. So it is a very like, different time in the sense of like really understanding that someone else was on the other side of this keyboard. And if you want to, you communicate directly with them, which is very rewarding. When you're creating long form content these days, you are constantly competing with Twitter. And I think Twitter, well, at least for people who like Twitter, they love Twitter and it's really hard to make content that is more appealing to read than your Twitter feed. I, I just from you know from from the perspective of somebody who who really likes Twitter. So I guess speaking more generally, what kinds of long form content are people willing to read? What do you have to do to get people to read a piece of long form content? Are you saying that anything beyond a tweet is long form? Not necessarily. <laughs> I mean, my experience of reading Twitter competes with long form because I can read Twitter infinitely and it is just this shifting maelstrom of <laughs> endless opinions and I can find threads and one piece of content ties into another and it's just this uh, shifting sands of a forum of endless entertainment and education. But it does not have necessarily 
the depth of a single piece of long-form content. So it does feel like I need a balanced diet of long-form content and Twitter in order to get the uh, total picture of what's going on, um, you know, as far as I have a complete picture of what's going on. But what makes the long-form content that people are willing to read uh, good enough these days? Yeah, I mean, versus the tweet, you know, it is nice to read something where, like, the same person chose the next sentence. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like, the, reading your Twitter feed, you know, even with good filters and what have you, you know, it's a great, like, snapshot of the day, but it's very... It's like, it's very, it's like if you had a very, very large library and you put it on shuffle, you know, you're going to get a next song that's probably not that relevant and that's a song. So it's a good bit longer. But like, if you were to go to the album, you know, and listen to the whole album, you get a more, like, it's a better drive. If you're going to put an album on while you're driving somewhere, I'd, I'd rather do an album than shuffle a lot of times. But anyway, you know, longer form stuff that has resonated with us, definitely the, Longer form essay, you know, the essay is still like living strong in my mind in a lot of ways stronger than before. And, you know, Medium has been good in their design about saying how long this read will take. Is it an eight minute read? Is it a 12 minute read? Is it a three minute read? It's one minute read that's useful for framing in terms of like, it is like, it's, it is almost like you take a deep breath before you're going to have an eight minute read. It is going to take that level of focus for eight minutes and you have to I don't know if it's good or bad for reading that we're putting so much emphasis on time because a lot of the value of reading is that you forget how long you're doing it because you go so deep into it. And that's part of the reward. But to get the reward, you have to put in the hard work and let your brain moving enough to get into it, which can be difficult in today's age of you know, Twitter feeds and a million different articles. And, but I mean, so we've, the long form essay has done well, you know, on, on Hacker Noon, a lot of more longer form essays around blockchain, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, because it's such, so much money is flowing into the space right now that you kind of, when it's a new space and you don't really understand it, there becomes a very large demand for not only entry level posts. So like, I think it was WTF is the blockchain was a very viral story we had. And it was 3,000, 4,000 words digging into this is what it is. So, you know, there's that element of educational deeper dives that are very useful. And it brings in a reader that can then also get tons of future value because once they read an intro post or two, now they can dive into the longer form essays that's a little more speculative about where this industry could go or deeper issues that are happening or, you know, like hacks that happen that you can now understand because you read the entry level content. So there's, and that's all longer form, more, more thoughtful stuff. And then there's also the personal story almost whenever it's less like an essay and, you know, on like sites like Athena talks where we talk a lot about, you know, feminism and me too. And even on art plus marketing, where deeper dives into like even the wine industry or what it means to be an artist or how my life changed now that I'm dating an artist. Those personal stories, I still have a, a ton of value and that, you know, that plays into something we were talking in the beginning of like how I see digital publishing moving towards the individual voice. And so, you know, there is a huge demand for telling a longer form story about yourself as opposed to 
Throwback Thursday. Here's a picture of me being a cowboy for Halloween. You know, it's the actual story of you doing your first trick or treating and going out on the town. So that that stuff is very interesting to read to me. I do feel like the internet has gotten better over the last couple. Something's happened in the last couple of years where the internet has gotten really good at telling me here is an article that everybody in your network is reading and you know look i understand the the prevalence of of bubbles and we don't want to be in our little bubbles and whatnot but nonetheless if you are in a specific industry that is moving very fast it helps to have a shared sense of what's going on in the industry and one way to do that is to read the things that everybody else in the industry is reading. That's not to say you can't read other stuff. I certainly do try to read other stuff. But for example, when you know there are three articles that basically explain here is James Damore and here is the arguments on either side of James Damore, you want to read those three articles and then you want to read tons of other stuff. But if there's three articles that literally everybody in the business is reading and then you can read whatever supporting articles you want to, uh, and that's fine. Like, it's really important that you are at least aware that those three articles are at the top of the maelstrom. And I feel like something has happened. I feel like Medium is a part of it where the Internet has just gotten significantly better at letting me know which of those articles I should be taking a look at, which ones I should be taking seriously. Yeah, it certainly has. And there's um, it's a complicated relationship with the bubble because you want to be in the bubble and you want to be out of the bubble. It's like you want to be in the know of your industry and that essentially is saying you want to be in the bubble. And yeah, I, I think, I mean, Facebook is also very good at it. Twitter is very good at it. LinkedIn is trying to be good at it. Medium is good at it. Pocket. I don't know if you use Pocket. Yeah. Um, not a ton, but yeah, they, they're very good at it. Yeah. It's, I mean, part of me doesn't like the privacy implications of what we're talking about in the sense that like, you know, what they're reading versus what they're sharing, you know, because what they're sharing <laughs> is, what they're, is what they're choosing to put out there. And what they're reading very well could just be, you know, who's tracking who, which can be a little more frustrating. But in, in general, I think knowing that information is good and it makes you a better professional and you can choose to read or not read the article. But knowing whether whether it's one a day, three a day, five a week, you know, finding that ideal number or what like the average ideal number is in that in that area of like what industry articles are the minimum that you need to read to continue being a functioning professional in this space is a tough question. And there are, like you said, a lot of groupthink dynamics. That is one of the more rewarding things I've had of publishing, you know, less accomplished writers and people that kind of come out of nowhere, but just happen to have a strong opinion on it. I always take joy in finding that story, you know, whether the person's in India or Canada or San Francisco, whether they're working at a, you know, a well-funded startup or they're trying to do their own thing, finding like anytime I find someone that I haven't heard of and I'm not, you know, connected to and they come in with like just a strong story, it's always a really good feeling to move that you know, to one of the featured stories and drive a lot more traffic to it because then you're getting the overlap on content and you're getting outside the bubble. It's still in the bubble that the, the content or subject matter is the same, but it's outside the bubble in the sense of like, 
you're bringing someone that wasn't previously perceived to be you know, a leader in this space and you're putting their opinion front and center and seeing how people resonate or don't resonate with it. You've scaled a one-person media company, essentially. What are some of the ways that the scaling limitations are starting to uh, to break you? Or, or what are the ways that you've had to modify your your company? Or have you had to hire part-time people in order to solve? I mean, I just because I can say I can personally relate to the difficulties of scaling a one-person media company and, and the benefits. Yeah, we do have a number of part-time people. So that, you know, moves everything forward. And I'd like to scale part-time staff much more in the sense of like, you know, definitely with editors, building more ideas. I guess, you know, not having the amount of resources that I prefer because we've grown is make more money, spend more money. You know, it's a very, the growth is real in the sense that I'm not, I'm not taking a money, bunch of money, seeding a large marketplace and throwing it in and, you know, seeing what happens. There's an element of like, the amount that it grows is the amount of money I make. I make more money, I can execute more of my projects. So, I mean, I think with more money and more people, you know, a lot of these related ideas that are in digital publishing, connecting my various publications and monetizing my publications would happen a lot faster. And backing up on an emotional level, loneliness. I mean, it's one of the nicest things about co-founders is spreading out you know, the hard times. It's like, as I've worked with other startups and see how they do it, it's, you know, it's very nice to have someone else when shit hits the fan. But, you know, I'm pretty individualistic. And, you know, my wife knows a lot about the business and works part time on the business. So an, an emotional support system that's very high, you know, Jay Zalowitz, who's been part time with me for two years as he has full time engineering job is my friend first. And, you know, scaling out the editors on other sites, they're people that like, I like talking to, I like how they write, you know, it's very important. Essentially, like, I mean, writing is such an important skill and way of communicating that in a lot of ways, it can, you know, reduce loneliness. And it's also like, to me, the strength of the business is thousands of small relationships with many contributing writers you know, that's, that's a part-time relationship. And that's a small, it's thousands of small relationships versus saying, I want four people and I want to buy all their work all the time, which, you know, the full-time, the full-time employer employee relationship, I think is very broken and doesn't benefit the employee as much as they think it does. You know, especially looking at startup ownership, and equity, and then no equity, as you look at more traditional companies, that doesn't make much sense to me. You know, if you're working at 10 person startup right now, and say it's, you're not one of the founders, I mean, you're one tenth of the operating labor of the company, but you do not have one tenth of that company. You know, that they're probably set up, the standard model is 10% employee equity pool, and they're all vesting over four years. So even though you're the top engineer at that company and you're one of 10 people, you probably are only going to get 1% of equity over four years. And if you leave after one year, you're going to get 0.25. And if you leave at 11 months, you get nothing, even though you built the whole initial framework of the company. So there's a lot there that like 
not quite related, but I'm just trying to explain how I see corporate structures and how the problems I see. And I'm trying to structure mine in a way that, you know, works towards better, more honest and more partnering relationships. Well, you've said so much there that I agree with. First of all, the loneliness of running a one-person company, together with the irony of the fact that you have thousands and thousands of readers. <laughs> it's just <laughs> ironic that you're, you are communicating with thousands of people, but on a day-to-day basis, you just are sitting in your office probably sometimes the entire day not talking to a single person if you're anything <laughs> like me. It's just this like modern irony. It's like not to complain about it, but it's just like literally it's unhealthy to go an entire day without physically interacting with somebody. And it's very easy to do that these days. Well, I, I have my family to prevent that problem, but oh, that's true. It can, I yeah, have my cats. <laughs> I would recommend the family. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but you know the the other thing, you know, you know I I left my job at Amazon to start this podcast and um part of the reason was because you know I love Amazon, I learned so much there, but it just felt deeply strange to be writing code that was going to help a company make essentially millions of dollars a year and then you only get to capture like one tenth or one twentieth of the margins that they're going to make off of code that you're writing and it's just like do I really want to be doing this? But on the other hand, you're learning totally differentiated skills by being Mm -hmm. at a big company. Anyway, it's certainly at least something people should consider. uh, And I have talked about that a lot in other episodes. Uh, And so I know, I know we're up against time. I just, I wanted to ask you one last topic, just about the future of publishing. There's this strong division today between these credentialed news organizations like the Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg. And there's good reason for them to be credentialed because they have fact-checking and they have a brand that is, there's a lot of brand equity that has been built up by real events, them reporting on stuff so diligently. But there's a strong division between those companies and companies like Software Engineering Daily or Hacker Noon, arguably. And then there's things in between like BuzzFeed, where BuzzFeed has... I think some like significant fact checking, significant editorial staff, but they don't have the credentials of a Washington Post or New York Times. I'm just curious, how do you see this gradient between the credentialed organizations and the non-credentialed organizations and media overall? How do you see it evolving in the next decade? Yeah, a lot there. I think traditionally has shifted a lot towards consolidation. You know, as these smaller ones emerge, the bigger ones try to buy them up and put them under the hood. So I think as opposed to a lot of other industries, you know, like, for example, if you're competing over a recruiting technology, a lot of times it can be easier to just build your own similar thing. But with media, it's a brand, it's an audience, it's a community. So, and these larger companies, they want the smaller ones to emerge so they can learn what works and either do that or buy them. So there is an element of consolidation that like is can be a little frustrating on both sides where you know what does it mean to be time? You know, and if time gets bought out this week, it's like how does that change time? You know, but it's like there's still time. So there's a, a branding 
can be, you know, bigger than ever because essentially there is no product. You know, it's the next story. And how good are you at bringing them the next story and how much they trust you to do that is uh, very important. I mean, with Hacker Noon, I'm trying to work with more larger media companies as just to get to this perception and this branding level that I should be mentioned on the same level of Huffington Post. And, you know, one thing we did last week is we kicked off a partnership with Quora where we'll be publishing their top trending tech story one per day. And then on the Quora answer, it'll say this Quora answer was published in Forbes and Hacker Noon, if those are the two sites that it republished on. So, you know, that's a partnership that only 30 or so media companies have with Quora. And that's something where you look at like how to move between the lowest level to the mid level to the top level. And part of it is just partnerships with the ones that are already up there. And whether you're mm-hmm. being a distribution channel for them or whether you're supplying content for them, those are two very simple ways where if you're good at it, companies will want to work with you. So that's part of the approach I'm trying to bring in, you know, cause it's like, we'll get some time every now and then, you know, wired CNN, these sites will pick up our story and I won't even notice it for a day or two just because someone that one of their reporters read it and they linked to it. And I try not to like, you know, obsess over who's talking to us. It's kind of like, that is the nice anecdotal stuff. And if you're doing the right things, that'll happen. But you also, and I'm trying to proactively take more steps where I'm setting up residual relationships with these larger media companies so that we can grow audience and readership and community together. Hmm. All right, David. Well, congratulations on the Quora partnership. I love Quora and it's great to see you partner with them. Thanks for coming on the show. And I look forward to talking to you soon and keeping in touch with how Hacker Noon's going. Yeah, it's uh, great to talk to you. I appreciate you having me on the show. And I think you have a uh, great voice for this podcast. Well, thank you. Wow.